0: Please welcome to the stage Nicole Flato, Bill de Blasio, Steve Adler, and Ted Wheeler.
1: Good evening, can everybody hear me okay? Well first can I say I'm I'm very impressed that you all made it after the, I think, several room changes. Uh, Really glad to be here with you all. I'm Nicole Flato. I am the editor of CityLab. For those who aren't familiar with it, uh, it's citylab.com. We are a sister site of The Atlantic, uh, focused on urban ideas. Um, We talk a lot about sort of uh, the greatest problems and solutions from cities to to world issues. So uh, nothing is more appropriate than talking to these three guys today. And the topic that we're going to talk about has been on our minds at CityLab constantly, which is this question of local power um, and local empowerment and how mayors and cities are rethinking that, uh, particularly in the age of Trump. So a few things have been happening that we're gonna delve into a little bit. One of them is uh, that cities have been the aggressors in a lot of respects when it comes to immigration, when it comes to climate, when it comes to guns. Uh, these, These guys in particular can tell you a little bit about that. Uh, the other thing that's been happening is that cities have borne the burden increasingly uh, in a number of areas in which the federal government is at least threatening to pull back. So things like housing, infrastructure, et cetera. Um, so that's kind of the basics of what we want to look at today, and we have with us uh, three of the mayors who have been particularly vocal on that note, uh, among other things. So that's where I want to start. I'd love to have you guys lay out a little bit uh, what what local power is about, and in particular, What I'd like you to address is, I I think most folks know that you've been vocal. Uh, How does that translate into policy? In other words, we have a federalist system of government. Um, There are powers that the federal government has, that the state has, and localities have. There are limits to the formal powers that you all have. In some respects, you might say that you're testing those limits. Uh, So how do you think about the limits of your power, and what's what's one thing that you've done, uh, or maybe that you've seen someone else do that has been most effective in kind of expanding either your formal or soft power. Barry de Blasio, if you want to start.
2: Well, thank you, Nicole. Thank you, everyone, for being here. So to the question, how do I think about the limits of my city's power? The answer is I don't think about the limits of my city's power. <laughs> I think about the potential of my city's power. And I don't mean that to be you know facetious. I mean it uh, from the heart. Uh, I think this has been growing well before Trump's election. But I think Trump's election Uh, deepened it that uh, cities are in effect we're in the middle of our own you know do-it-yourself movement because we have to because we haven't had federal policies for a long time that responded to the reality our people's needs and so we have to create we have to innovate we have to figure out places we can go that we didn't necessarily go before Um, from my point of view we have in many cases a lot more tools than we even knew And uh, I could aim many uh, situations that we've faced, but to try and uh, illustrate clearly, I want to use an example that we went through recently uh, when the United States government pulled out of the Paris Agreement. Uh, It would have been a a time, not uh, surprisingly, if localities had said, well, you know, our nation's out of it, what can we do? You know, we have to move on to other things. The extraordinary response, and these cities, my colleagues were deeply involved in this with us and so many others, over 300 American cities said, our response to Trump leaving the Paris Agreement is we will now re-sign and recommit ourselves to the Paris Agreement. Why would we wait on our national government when we could do a lot of this ourselves? And if you take 300 major American cities all acting in concert, we can actually do a lot to reduce emissions to address global warming directly. So I think what's happening in a sense is it is a redefinition of the federalist dynamic where more and more policy has to become the sum of a number of parts happening locally because if it doesn't happen locally, it's not going to happen anywhere else. Mayor Adler. I was going
0: to say, I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't think about this whole discussion uh, as as a power debate, although I recognize that it is. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at national political debate right now, what's happening on the national scene, and it is deadlocked, and it is uh, partisan. Uh, it is not constructive to, to actually solving problems on the ground, uh, even at the state level. The, the level of government that is actually getting things done today is, the, is the, what's happening at the city level. These two cities and, and mayors, great examples of that. You know, at at the city level, uh, people expect things to, to happen. They expect potholes to get filled. They expect to be safe. They they expect concrete action. Uh, so so I think that that cities, uh, in in pursuit of what it is that is expected of them, will will run into roadblocks in an environment where the the the. the, the Higher currency is a partisan issue. So safety and immigration would be the example that I that I would pull forward. Immigration and the policies we take of that are very simple to us in Austin in this city. Our public safety professionals have told us that we are one of the four safest cities in the country because of the trust relationship that exists between our law enforcement and the people that live in our community. So Witnesses come forward, people that are being victimized come forward for protection. Uh, when they're scared to do that, then, then protagonists go, go uh, unrestrained and that makes a community less safe. Uh, women who have been uh, assaulted that show up at our rape crisis center don't refer that matter to police. We are less safe. So, so our pushback on those things uh, is, is very specific and very concrete. It's designed to keep us safe because that's our job. And, and quite frankly, we'll continue to try to do the things that, that, that we have to do. In Texas, uh, there was a law that was passed that, that limited cities' abilities to be able to take care of themselves and provide for safety and, in fact, had a provision that said that uh, elected officials could be removed from office by the governor the attorney general if we endorsed a policy different than the law and endorsed as the word in the statute. That's gotta be a violation of the First Amendment. Um, but it's, 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 it's that kind of, of, of partisan or political response that you can't worry about. You really do have to just try to protect your people. Amen. Mayor Wheeler. Well, I, I agree with my colleagues.
3: Uh, I, I'm the new guy on stage. I've only been mayor for about 14 months. And I'll just say it's been quite a ride Mm-hmm. up to this point and uh, for the most part I knew what I was signing up for but I really didn't understand the dynamic of Trump and his administration and what he has surfaced that already existed in our country I remember in the early days of my administration people were talking about how do we resist what's going on in Washington at the local level that's all gone It's not about resistance anymore. Now it's a question that's gone much beyond that. Whether the president intended it or not, I think he didn't, he unleashed a movement at the local level where we are actually exceeding even what the federal administration could have accomplished, whether it's climate change. We're going way beyond the Paris Accords at the city, at the municipal level, and now we're leveraging off of each other by coalescing around goals, including 100% renewable energy and other aspects. When it comes to immigration, there's no question that the president galvanized us all around welcoming, inclusive, and sanctuary strategies at the local level, and not just as talking points, but actually implementing constitutional and legal responses to the federal government's absence in the discussion around meaningful immigration Policy, And I'm very proud of what we've been able to accomplish there. Uh, Around uh, climate change, certainly we've exceeded it. When it comes to infrastructure investments, there's a lot of talk in Washington, D.C., but few deliverables, and I'm excited by what's happening at the local level around infrastructure investment and certainly in other areas, from from policing to health care to addressing the homeless crisis that's unfolding on our streets. You see local leaders and local governments coalescing with our communities and then joining hands collectively to provide the leadership that should be provided in Washington but isn't provided. And I think the most exciting thing about being here at this time in history is recognizing that you can't put this genie back in the bottle it has fundamentally changed what it means to be the mayor in an American city, and it has caused us to evaluate and recognize the significant collective power that we have to help lead this nation.
1: Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of really powerful points brought up there that will easily segue into some follow-up discussion. So, Mary, I'll, I'll put it back to you for a minute, uh, but Mary de Blasio, you brought this up as well. I, I know climate is at the forefront for all of you in terms of an issue that you've taken up locally in the absence of really any federal leadership in, in the sense that they, that uh, President Trump removed himself from the Paris Accord. Um, you suggested that cities are exceeding the limits of the or the the requirements of the Paris Accord, uh, so let's concede for a moment that 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 would be a challenge for cities to do alone. Um, that you would be better off if the federal government were also doing this, Certainly. at least in some respects, and you could still also have this coalition. Um, so, can can we agree that it will be difficult for cities alone to reach the emission reduction goals? Although something I know you're aspiring for without the federal government and. What, what are your cities doing uh, specifically that you think will get you closest to, uh, to getting there?
3: All right, well, well first, let me yeah. not concede the point <laughs> okay. that you implied. <laughs> um, we're stuck right now yep. with the federal government that we're stuck with, but that is not our expectation as mayors for the long term, and we expect to continue to be innovation laboratories, and we expect to continue to leverage the resources. We have finite, though they are, and the authorities we have prescribed, though they are, uh, but we will be ready to meet with a Washington DC that is prepared to lead. We're not gonna stop innovating and we're not going to stop leading just because Washington is a wall for the conversation. We will be ready to step up our gain and make sure that we can collectively work together with the federal government's full authority and support once this administration is gone to meet the goals that were established in Paris that we have all agreed and committed to upholding. Now what can we do at the local level? Uh, I come from a jurisdiction, Portland, where We have been in the climate action game for a long time. We have 170 specific policies that we are pursuing. We have actually reduced our gross climate emissions over 20% below 1990 levels, even as our community has grown in population, even as our economy has grown. Uh, We, on about 85% of those objectives, they're either underway or we have already met those objectives. We're moving towards 100% renewable energy. And uh, it's really caused our community to think in terms of innovation around uh, green roof strategies, around energy requirements for commercial developments, around the green spaces that we create in our community, around air and water quality. our, Our climate action plan isn't just to meet any particular set of climate standards. It's also how we organize and plan our community And what sorts of policies we want to enact uh, and we've engaged the entirety of the community in helping us to achieve those goals so at the community level uh, every city has the ability to be very very powerful and successful in objectively reducing climate emissions we certainly feel we've been successful
0: Mm
1: -hmm. mm-hmm okay mayor de Blasio I, I know you spoke to this a little bit too let's let's expand on that point a little bit so uh, so Portland is doing a number of things, certainly, as is, as is New York City. Uh, you are limited by the purviews of your own jurisdiction in some respects. Or so are, are you? That's a question that I want to ask you. Uh, is, to what extent are, do you feel that the policies that you're perpetuating uh, have mechanisms for also collaborating with, even, for example, regional entities. I'm, I'm from the suburbs of New York City, for mm-hmm. example. So how, how would that uh, affect me?
2: Okay, so uh, just very quick. I think we uh, see this both in terms of the sort of pragmatic policies that achieve tangible things, but also how you change the entire political discourse to achieve bigger change. I mm-hmm. think both trains are running simultaneously. Pragmatically, we have a lot of power in our city, and I think a lot of cities do, to put requirements on uh, the the private sector that have a real impact. We've put mandates on our private sector on building owners that they must retrofit their buildings or face substantial financial penalties if they don't. That's where most of our emissions that we can act on come from in New York City. Uh, We also have recognized that the, the government has an opportunity to reset people's behavior and support behavior change in the best sense. But, for example, we're going to be putting electric vehicle charging stations all over the city. That's a good public investment to help transform the way people get around. We're going to have an all-electric car fleet. We're going to be buying cars anyway. Why don't we use our power in the market and our own self-determination to move towards electric cars? These are the kinds of things that a lot of cities, a lot of localities, regions can act on. But then there's the context of changing the bigger Uh, political discussion because I I think we were all taught that government cascades downward, you have a federal government, state government, local government, and poor local government waiting for the other two to do something. The other two stopped doing something in a lot of cases, and the energy and the activism uh, started moving more and more to local level. I think Ted's right, the genie's out of the bottle, it's not going back. So what happens is if you build local power and local activism, it starts to force the hand and or inspire in a more positive sense lots of more places to do it And again, that starts to bubble up and force the hands of federal policymakers. So one thing we're going to do, for example, in New York City, we are divesting uh, our pension funds from fossil fuel investments. We don't want to be a part of the fossil fuel industry. We don't want to have anything to do with them. And that's going to be a $5 billion divestment. We think that's going to help a lot of other places do the same thing. We think that's going to start to force the issue in the public mind and in the political discourse all over. So to me, it is this is to your original question, sort of what are our limits and why I don't see a lot of limits, sometimes what we do is we take a narrow power and we act in a very practical manner for a specific goal. Sometimes what we do is we change the entire dialogue, mm-hmm. and that starts a lot of other things in motion. I have to say, and the climate issue's is a great example, I never feel like we're out of options. I also agree with Ted. I I don't think, uh, even though of course federal policy would speed us on the way to uh, 80 percent reduction by 2050 a lot better than just us doing it alone, what if the cavalry never came? We still have to do it ourselves. Mm -hmm. It's a a survival thing. So I think our mentality is we're going to keep innovating new approaches regardless of whether the federal government ever shows up.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let me pivot off one thing uh, you said there, and then I'll get back to you, Mayor Adler. Uh, to your point about about setting an example, and, and certainly that's, you know, something that, that cities do a lot, and, and we cover quite a bit, is l- laboratories of democracy, cities that are doing something for the first time for other cities to follow, et cetera, uh, and that's a mechanism that you will use frequently. I, I, I saw some press coverage about this sort of little um, set of trips that you're going on now being described as a progressive tour and this notion that you're... Uh, Uh, trying to rally some support for some agendas that you have Uh, talk about uh, what it means for you to be setting out a progressive vision in terms of kind of pragmatism have you been able to work at all with Republicans um, you know particularly at the city level and have you alienated any of your own constituents who perceive you as kind of having a national agenda how do you toe that line?
2: So you can't make change the way you should ideally without trying to move the national dynamic. We are ready to go it alone. I, I, I can't speak for my colleagues, but certainly I've watched the work they do and so many do. We know a lot of the times we have to go it alone. But the the ideal is always to try and change the national debate and ultimately change policies in Washington. We've actually seen some moments where that worked. A lot of us worked very hard to protect the Affordable Care Act and worked with movements all over the country. And by, by the way, often bipartisan, a lot of Republican mayors joined in that because they realized. Without the Affordable Care Act, their cities would be in real tough shape. Um, That helped to push in some states and some districts uh, their members of Congress. That's a kind of uh, opportunity to either make something good happen on the federal level or stop something bad from happening. That is another piece of the picture. We can't say just because so often we have to do it ourselves, we're going to turn our back on the national discussion. So what I say to my constituents is, the best thing for New York City, and I think for a lot of cities, it's for us to work together to change federal policies while at the same time maximizing what we can do locally. And yes, there is bipartisanship. We've seen this on Infrastructure too, for example, where more and more Republican mayors recognize that the federal government has to get back into the work of building infrastructure around the country. They see it from their own pragmatic lens that the absence of that federal investment is holding back their economies. We can work with them on that. If the federal government never gets it together, we're still gonna find every conceivable tool to address infrastructure in our own way, but it will nowhere be as much as if the federal government was involved. So I think it's a classic walk and chew gum. We gotta deliver for our constituents, we gotta make change in the ways we can while constantly fighting for those moments of breakthrough on the federal level. And what I've found as I go around the country, I mean, there's tremendous progressive energy, we all know this. Mm -hmm. And we also, you know, what we do is when we meet each other, we, we take ideas and we figure out how we can take someone else's idea and use it in our city or how we can support someone when they're trying to do something bold and help show the people in their city if, if it worked for us, it can work for you. Progressive mayors are doing that all the time and it's part of why we've been able to speed up sort of the conveyor belt of progressive change locally.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so Mayor Adler, as you alluded to, uh, in some respects you are in a little bit of a different circumstance in the sense that you uh, are a relatively liberal city in a state that not only is far less liberal than your city, but also uh, has a particularly aggressive way as of late of of thwarting things that your city might want to do through the form of preemption, which is their mechanism for saying, this is actually a state function, not a local function, so we're going to revoke your power to do this, right? So you talked a little bit about that um, with respect to immigration. Um, Let's explore that a little bit more. So (coughs) you all have, have said that you don't, any limits, but but in fact, what happens when you pass a law and the state, as has many times been the case, comes in and says, "No, you can't pass that law. Um, we we have discretion over this area, and we don't think that you should be a sanctuary city or have this particular sanctuary city law." How how do you respond to that uh, in a policy respect? Or you know, you're facing a real limit there. What is what is your move in that scenario?
0: Well, I think that that where those lines lie yeah. is not something that is clearly established. So so we, we've heard for 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 decades about the liberty interest involved in letting the, the level of government that was closest to the people decide uh, issues for those communities. And certainly in Austin, Texas, we have certain values. Uh, this community knows what kind of ordinances and laws we want to pass. Uh, but after having heard uh, this discussion happening at the state level as they looked at the federal government, now we're, we're confronted with losing our local liberty uh, interest to those very same people that, that were, were arguing for, for a different policy earlier. There are very real constitutional limits Uh, on the United States government's uh, ability to be able to direct cities, uh, and and those limits are being explored in the courts. We're in court right now with the state with respect to to limitations that we believe exist uh, on the state in terms of denying individuals operating through their local governments uh, uh, on those limitations, and the courts will decide those those questions. Uh, but in the meantime, while those questions are being decided, again, we have to continue to, to act in the best interest of, of the people that live here, uh, and, and we, you know, our, our legislature in Texas meets once every two years for, for five months. Uh, And and sometimes it feels like the first month and a half that they come into session, they take a look at what Austin has done over the preceding 18 months to see what they can flip. Uh, But but this year it was different. It was different this year because it wasn't directed just at Austin in a very real sense in ways that we had not seen before. It was directed at Houston and at Dallas and at San Antonio and El Paso and Fort Worth and and Corpus Christi and I, I, I agree with the mayors uh, there is there is a a change uh, afoot uh in terms of the relationship between states and cities and it wouldn't be the first time that that's happened in this country uh it happened again uh, happened at first in the in the late 1800s into the early 1900s in the, in the ripper law periods in the, in the country uh and i think that in in many respects we're going back to to those times and and the cities uh, uh fought that rear guard battle then and 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 we're fighting it again today
1: Yeah, I have to say, to your point about the legislature meeting meeting every two years, I I was struck by the recent instance in which Austin passed a uh, uh, paid sick uh, leave law, and and it it was pointed out by many people that while the state might want to overturn it, they had just adjourned for two years, and by the time they get around to it, quite a lot of things will have changed, so that is...
0: That well, I'm, inter- I'm interested to see. You know, usually, <laughs> and that's true. We we're gonna we, it. we're gonna have a sick wall <laughs> here for at least a period of time, and, <laughs> and the people in this community are going to be able to 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 enjoy the ability not to go to work sick. And quite frankly, our entire community will enjoy not having sick people go to work. Uh, And and it's a good thing and, you know, here recently the legislature has picked up issues and preempted cities on issues that were, uh, where the state action may have been popular. So while we disagree with immigration, the position taken by the legislature may have been the popular decision statewide but it'll be interesting to see what happens if Austin and maybe a few other cities uh, uh, have earned sick leave in their communities, what happens when the legislature convenes and it seeks to take away something right. mm-hmm. that people actually w- want mm-hmm. and that is demonstrably popular throughout the state.
2: I'm, I'm, I'm going to be interested in watching that. And just a quick add yep. this is the X factor. Steve's making a really important point. It's easy to posture until people have a right and they feel it and they experience it. And now, if you take it away, you create a different kind of political crisis and you create a whole lot of energy. So the state legislators do that. They now have a problem. I think a real important thing for progressives to recognize is you know, seize the ground, like get things done, move things, and dare the levels of government above us to try and take them back. And that's a lot Harder equation for state and federal governments to try and take something once people believe in it.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
3: Yeah, and, and if I could just build on mm-hmm. a riff off of these guys, because th- this is, I think, a really good and very important and timely conversation for me. Uh, we have probably just about won the lottery in terms of legislators, legislatures that should be consistent with what we want in our largest city, which is Portland. We have a Democratic governor. The leadership of both the House and the Senate are Democratic. The majority in both houses are Democratic. All but one of our statewide offices is held by a Democrat. And yet, we live in a state without just cause eviction. Mm -hmm. We basically have the Wild West when it comes to tenant rights. Uh, We have a no-cause eviction process across the board and at a time when the cost of housing is going through the roof in Portland as it is with virtually every other major metropolitan area in America, we have no tenant protections. So we went to the legislature hoping that we could both get a just cause eviction process and some form of rent stabilization. At the end of the day, we got neither. And so what we did was we got creative. We created what's called a relocation ordinance, and it protects tenants by giving them relocation resources in the event that certain things are triggered by the landlord. And you would think that we had just passed some sort of an ordinance to take private property en masse. (laughs) And really, it's a fairly light regulatory overlay compared to a just cause eviction process, and certainly compared to what other cities have all across the country. But going from that first step of no regulation to a lightly regulated market rip the Band-Aid off. And I think what we've done now is we've made it easier for the state legislature to act and do what they need to do on a statewide basis. So even though we weren't successful initially getting the statewide preemption mm-hmm. on rent control lifted, we were successful in finding a pragmatic workaround that still protects tenant rights and keeps that conversation alive. Uh, Because as people see that what's happening in Portland is successful, it's actually keeping people in their units, it's protecting tenants who are on the verge of being displaced, and they will see that it is not only working, but that it is popular in our community. That'll give the legislature the cover they need to come in and do the work that they need to do. So I I see us as having an opportunity to take the heat for lack of a better way of putting it. Take the innovative steps, do the groundwork, demonstrate that it can be a pragmatic and workable solution and then say now we need you guys to do your job and protect people who are not protected by Portland's ordinance. Because we do not have the entire population of our state in our jurisdictional. You can see why I'm such a
2: fan of these two guys, Equally, brother. But this is the disruptive point. I really want to commend you, Ted, because this disruptive notion is powerful. When you create, you called us the aggressors earlier. I got a kick out of that uh, because we're, we're only assertive. We, we you know, try and confront what comes down to us from, uh, from Washington, from our state governments. But look, there's something beautifully disruptive about that, an issue that was going ignored and unaddressed for obvious power dynamics, right? If you're going to affront landlords and the real estate industry, you can understand. Unfortunately, too many state legislators don't want to do that. So do it yourself create something that disrupts the equation, forces the issue forward, gets a lot of people energized and focused, and now you have the high ground. I think that's the model we're seeing in a lot of places, and that ability to not just change lives practically, but to change the entire political discourse, and with shocking speed, because of the glories of the digital age, is part of what we're all working with now.
1: Yeah. Um, Mayor Willard, you, in fact, teed up my next question there, articulated it quite well, that you, too, in fact, have some issues on which you are preempted by the state. On uh, housing, which of course is one of the greatest issues that all of you are dealing with that is even more um, traditionally a, a local issue uh, and so to your point, uh, what has happened in some instances is that issues that y- you know local governments traditionally have purview over like zoning and like uh, rent control laws have been uh, states have regulated around those issues and banned you from uh, addressing the issue and relatedly, I saw that you had a great uh, either exchange or maybe just reaction to Ben Carson at the end of last year uh, when he had said that uh, West Coast cities, he, he couldn't be responsible for West Coast cities' homelessness problem because they have rising rents and um, and it's mostly on, on them to fix that. Um, and you had a rather aggressive response, as, as you all are wont to do in, what, in whatever description you want to call it, uh, to say that... Uh, if, if he doesn't want to regulate, he should probably not be the head of HUD. Uh, but, but more seriously, this is a great example of the ways in which you all interact on a regular basis with some of our White House officials uh, and federal officials, but um, wh- what do you want most from the federal government on housing?
3: I want them to stop politicizing issues that are serious and real issues that need to be addressed. They need to roll up their sleeves put their Twitter accounts aside for a few days, and work with us. That's the first thing they need to do. And The second thing they need to do is stop dividing us. The fact of the matter is the homeless crisis and the housing affordability crisis impacts every single person in this country. Whether it's come to your community yet or not, it's coming, if it hasn't already reached it. And so for Secretary Carson to say what he said honestly left me aghast. How can he not recognize the federal government's complicity in creating this crisis that's now unfolding on the streets of my community? HUD support for affordable housing has declined by over 85% since the 1980s. That has had a demonstrable impact in my community. How can he not acknowledge the addiction crisis that is front and center in virtually every community in America today and not put two plus two together in terms of how that creates a problem on our streets? How can he not acknowledge in his position that we have uh, truly failed as an industrialized nation to create a community-based mental health delivery system that will also impact the homelessness crisis. How can he not talk to his colleagues in that administration and understand the structural economic issues that are leaving more and more people behind even as our economy continues to expand? Homelessness is just a a word for all of these conglomerated upstream issues that the federal government is in a unique position to provide resources and support to actually solve. These problems weren't created on the streets of my city. But this is where the problem is, and and we'll do what we need to do. We'll make the investments, we'll provide housing prevention, we'll provide shelter services, we'll provide addiction services, mental health services, youth services, domestic violence services. We'll do whatever we can with our bonding capacity to create housing, including permanent supportive housing, but we cannot do it alone. And this is one area where cities just don't have the capacity to play Superman Wonder Woman uh, in terms of solving these problems this requires and I, I'm not kidding and I'm not exaggerating when I say if you want to address the homeless crisis in America we need a Marshall-esque plan coming from the federal government to support state and local governments to address all of these issues addiction housing crisis mental health services domestic violence and all the requisite housing needs to get people off the streets and get them whatever help and support they need to stay off the streets. That's what it's going to take. And so I was really, really disappointed to read his comments. I thought they were flip, I thought they were divisive, and I thought they were completely bereft of facts. Other than that, I thought they were fine.
1: Thank you. I think you laid that out well. So I think, I think some people in the audience may be sold on your pitch. Um, as part of these, you all are, are, you know, in conversation and in coalition, and we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, in depth later. Do you, other than, you know, having real talk with your federal officials, do you see any way forward towards working with the current federal government uh, in getting any of these things done?
2: Not the administration, but the Congress. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. because I think the, the ground's shifting under their feet, too. Yeah. And that's, you know, the ACA, again, if, if there was one thing, uh, I want to take, let's do some audience participation, simple question. How many people thought when Donald Trump was elected with a full Republican Congress leadership on his side that the ACA would be fully repealed? Raise your hand if you thought it would be repealed. Okay, we got a lot of people. Um, I you know, that election night, the next day, I thought, I, I don't. we're gonna try and save it, I don't know how we save it. But a movement developed locally and those amazing town hall meetings, for example, where it was this beautiful role reversal, you know, karmic dynamic of the same town hall meetings that had been used so much against the ACA originally, now suddenly, if you wanted to save the ACA, have a town hall meeting in Arkansas. You know, it was beautiful. Yeah. And But that created the dynamic that created, uh, that forced the hand of the Congress, that, that caused hesitation. So I think with that was a great example of something where we could have an impact. I think there is a chance on infrastructure to get something done with a simple ground rule. We're not gonna allow privatization. We're not gonna allow an infrastructure plan that really is a plan to help the finance industry or the hedge funds, but something that's actually about good old government spending to build mass transit or roads or bridges. That's something we might be able to get some bipartisanship on. But with the actual, with the official administration, I I don't see it.
1: Yep. Okay. Well, let's let's turn to another another question uh, regarding your collaboration, Uh, Mayor De Blasio. I I understand that you've been having some conversations with these guys, and uh, so just to give a little bit of context, um, at the end of last year, the FCC repealed net neutrality, um, and you all have been talking about this a bit. Totally different issue, but one in which similarly there was some federal action, and a lot of localities were concerned about it, um, and you have some late-breaking breaking, uh, breaking news. news that you want to share.
2: All right. I need a breaking news logo to come up as I say this. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we have been talking, and with a lot of our colleague mayors, who all feel uh, that the action taken by the FCC fundamentally affronts our democracy. And just a quick frame, I mean, there's a, there's a democracy crisis happening in this country right now and it is, you see declining participation, and you see more and more barriers to people being able to register and vote, and that alone should worry us deeply. But then when you see the FCC undermine net neutrality, uh, that's a direct shot at public discourse and freedom of expression and the possibility of people to organize to defend their own interests. I don't have to tell anyone here, because of the availability of that venue, we saw the Women's March, Uh, January 21st, 2017, the, the largest set of demonstrations in American history was made possible by full and open access to the internet. We certainly have seen how the students in Parkland, who I think have done something absolutely extraordinary already, have been able to organize as high school students in a way that was inconceivable previously. That's because that open venue is there. So what we are doing together, we have a group called Mayors for Net Neutrality, And you want to learn more, here's the really dynamic website name, (laughs) mayorsfornetneutrality.org. And I was like, someone call the branding department. uh, So so we have a pledge that we're all taking, and it's quite simple. It says, with uh, the money we spend on Internet service providers that our cities spend, in the case of New York City, our uh, contracts with ISPs add up to about half a billion dollars over the next few years that we will not do business with any internet service provider that does not honor net neutrality. We'll just take their business away from them. And and my colleagues are passionate on this and I just wanna say, here's a simple concept. So right now, we're announcing today a dozen American cities have agreed, we're gonna work together, we're gonna use our economic power to force the hands of these companies. We're going to build a movement among other cities. And we're going to do something else that's really important. We need to name and shame any company that doesn't honor net neutrality. We need to help consumers know and citizens know that they don't have to work with those companies. They don't have to give those companies support either. So at mayorsfornetneutrality.org, anybody can go on there and sign up and become personally a part of the movement to get your own city to to get in on this, but also to be part of a body of people who are going to just take our economic power and walk away from the companies that are trying to take away our rights.
1: Okay. Well, my first follow-up question is, are you guys in? Are you in the dozens?
2: Yes. uh, So we're we're very
3: in. Uh, Senator Ron Wyden from Oregon has been a national leader on this subject, and I want to give him some credit along with Bill and others who who have been leading this Steve Bullock from Montana. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, I, I want to underscore what's at stake, because for a lot of people this feels like insider baseball. And when they hear the term net neutrality, they wonder what does that actually mean? And while we have industry and while we have technology interests and while we have educational institutions who definitely understand the importance of this, we as advocates need to start talking about it in a way that people understand what we are talking about. And what we are talking about is controlling information and controlling data and saying that some people and institutions with resources should have access to that data at one level and one price, and people who don't fit that bill do not have access to that data and information. And in an age where data and information controls resources, that is a significant dynamic. People are coming after this net neutrality idea because they don't like the idea of a level playing field when it comes to sharing data and information because it creates more competition for that resource. It is fundamentally a right in this era where we are technologically to gain access to information and data on a level playing field basis. So I'm really appreciative, Bill, of your leadership on this and bringing such passion to the mayors on this subject, and I want to thank everybody who's worked on this at the local level and at the federal level to continue to push this. It's very, very important that we support this initiative.
0: You know, you look at the internet, and, and there is nothing that has contributed to global democratization more. <clears throat> there is no compromise of that, uh, that, that should be allowed. Uh, nor do I think ultimately can there be any compromise of that that, that can last? Um, and I think it is, is really powerful to have mayors join. Uh, and this is not the only issue, going back to your earlier questions. Mayors have come together on, 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 on gun control issues. Mayors have come together on climate change, as you said earlier. You know, we, we can talk about the, the, the powers that exist in the relationship between cities and and the federal government or the states. But one of the most significant powers that mayors have is the power to be able to use the bully pulpit. It's it's to be able to express the will of the people and to pull people together. Uh, And you see that happening more and more because of the vacuum that exists otherwise. I'm, I'm proud to be up here today with these two mayors and, and, and the bipartisan group of mayors with the United States Conference of Mayors that have taken a similar position. Uh, and, and here at South By, we have, we have 60 mayors, I think, uh, here uh, in, in attendance. And I think that says something as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so having established all of the reasons why you all uh, support this very strongly and articulated very well, uh, I, I want to ask a little bit more about how this will work. So you said initially that you that you the cities who are participating would not work with ISPs that aren't following these principles. Does that mean within city government? So in other words, it's similar to the state laws that have been discussed. So city agencies won't do business with these ISPs. It's not regulating anything else. Is that accurate? Well,
2: it's the first step to say yep. that the city governments, the city agencies, and by the way, again, you add them up, that's a big, big element in the market. And I'm sure that the internet service providers will read loud and clear that if a kind of sagebrush rebellion starts to grow among cities, that could add up to a lot of business. By the way, We love competition if there are enlightened Internet service providers that 100% say we're going to honor net neutrality and others that try and screw around or or hold back, you know, business is going to flow to the ones who protect our democratic rights. And so that's the first part. But the second part, as I said, is the name and shame, Uh, that we're going to use our power to monitor in a very public manner which companies respect net neutrality and which may be violating it. If they're violating it, we're gonna use our bully pulpits to get that word out to uh, you know, make it to, we're gonna out them in the most noble sense to have a public dialogue about what it means that a company is doing it. Again, I think a lot of consumers are gonna take exception if they see a company undermining their rights. And we think that is a strong bulwark uh, to protect net neutrality. Ultimately, you'd like a bigger uh, regulation that could protect everyone's interest in the whole society. Mm -hmm. But again, in the vein of I don't see any of us ever feeling um, chained because of the reality in Washington. I think we feel liberated to act and experiment. This is another way of figuring out what we can do to disrupt an equation. In Washington, they took the action at the FCC uh, to undermine our rights we could have sat back and said, oh, geez, I guess they run the country. We don't think they run the country. We think we run our cities, and that's what matters first. So we're disrupting by putting this out there, and we think it's going to be a very powerful countermeasure with a lot of multiplier effect up ahead.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I-, I would be remiss if I did not mention, although certainly will be not, not be the first time, that uh, when the FCC repealed uh, net neutrality, initially they did overtly say that they... We're intending to preempt cities and states from doing at least some regulation in this area. I assume that you anticipate lawsuits. In fact, I, I think some states have also filed lawsuits. Uh, what's, your, what's your strategy there? Lawsuits. <laughs> you love it.
2: We are so familiar with lawsuits. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we, we're on very firm legal ground, defending the rights of our people and using our taxpayers' money in a way consistent with their values. Uh, you know, I, I, Our folks have looked at it, we, we don't think there's a good angle, but yeah, of course we expect to be sued. Mm-hmm. And by the way, that's not unproductive unto itself. If they want to have it out in a very public way, mm-hmm. well, if we're being sued, that means that they want the right to inhibit your freedom of information, right? And your, your ability to participate. So any company that comes to sue us is putting the mark of the beast on themselves. <laughs> And I ultimately, ultimately,
1: you need a litigant, enough.
2: <laughs>
0: and, 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 and ultimately, you can't let what you do depend on what the reaction of others is going to be. Mm-hmm. There's something right and, and wrong here, and to the fullest extent that we're able to act rightly, it's incumbent upon us to do that. Amen. Yeah. That's
2: right. Amen. That's right.
3: Yeah. And. Um, I'm getting a bit of a a chuckle out of Bill's comment about lawsuits because it it feels like I haven't had a complete month if somebody hasn't sued me for something. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's also a pragmatic reason why mayors need to act together on these strategies. And that is in part because we know we will be challenged legally, just as we have been around sanctuary city issues. And because we have uh, approached... That debate, from a very parallel perspective as communities, we're able to work together legally so we don't have to defend lawsuits all across the country. We can actually start moving into class suits and going to federal court. And I think this is a perfect example where a city like Portland that doesn't have the resources, like a city like New York or a big city like you know, LA, um, if we're doing everything in parallel, that means we also can be part of what they are doing legally in the defense and working together, actually I think is is a huge opportunity for us uh, in terms of defending ourselves and also staving off the possibility of a lawsuit. Because when people start looking at this, they realize they're going to be going up against a fairly significant, cohesive defense. That's right.
1: Yeah, that is a really important point to raise. In fact, I was about to say that uh, you all, relative to actually a lot of other cities, are relatively well-resourced, and New York in particular seems raring to go for all the lawsuits, but uh, certainly some smaller cities, even with regards to issues that come up with the state, do find themselves deterred, or at least have you know said so to me, uh, in the sense that they do not have the capacity to go through that battle relative to the other things that they need to do. Um, so these collaborations, I think, are one answer to that. But another is, Can you are there other ways you can work around this? I just want to ask one other more solutions-oriented question about net neutrality. So were there other ideas that you workshopped? For example, one of the things that was raised as a potential counterforce to this in some ways is cities who have created their own public internet. So Chattanooga, for example, has done so, and... In fact, was had to go through a lawsuit with the FCC, but um, but nonetheless, uh, it, it served some other purposes in the sense that a lot of their areas were otherwise underserved by internet. Um, I think there were some other ideas that have been workshopped as to how cities might use sort of their soft power as well to work on this issue. Is there anything else that you that you considered uh, and haven't yet uh, included in this pack that you want to you want to raise now? Or what do you think about public internet?
0: Hmm
2: you guys? I don't know the answer to that.
1: Okay, fair enough.
2: I was looking for you know someone deep and wise here.
3: Well, I, I'm neither deep nor wise, <laughs> um, nor do I know anything about Chattanooga's strategy, so I'm, I'm not gonna comment on that, yes. except to say the internet already exists. We already have an internet. Now the fight is to make sure that it stays open and accessible to all, regardless of status. And so I, I think our first strategy should be to fight for the internet as it currently exists and then if that fails i don't think it will fail but
2: should it fail then we have to go to whatever plan b is Mm -hmm. yeah and i would also i agree with that and and i also think we have a lot of confidence that this kind of strategy takes on life its own that starts with a dozen cities grows rapidly picks up a lot of uh, popular involvement and popular support again has a consumer angle i think it's tremendously positive where it goes and and I think it sends a message to the companies that it's just you can't get away with something that's going to affront so many people so again I share that that sense of optimism I think we're on the right track with this.
0: And in a place
2: like South by uh, you you have to believe in the in
0: the iterative problem-solving process True. so so if this is not the best way to deal with this or if there needs to be alternate ways they will come uh, and 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 there will be other answers.
1: Yeah. So we're talking about pushback against companies. Um, uh, I want to ask one more question that's a little bit related, uh, which is not so much about Donald Trump for a change, but is about some pressures you might be facing from within your cities on, on an issue that's, you know, some people are both on both sides as to what's considered progressive. So um, there's a question of of how cities lower companies, most recently brought to light by the Amazon uh, headquarters discussion. Uh, So where Amazon has identified 20 cities uh, where Amazon might put their second headquarters, it's 50,000 jobs and a number of other people coming with them will be quite the boon to whatever city does it and has done it quite publicly. Uh, Two of you guys are on the the finalists' list, New York and, and Austin. Sorry, Mayor Wheeling. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you
3: later. I'm Thank you. <laughs>
1: for better or for worse, in fact. Uh, so, so Austin in particular has there, your bid is not public, right? Is, is that still the case? That's correct. Okay, and um, my understanding is that to some extent that. That may have something to do with the state. Uh, you could probably explain it more thoroughly, but, but what has come to light in the last week or so is that some members of the Council have, uh, of the Austin Council, have said that they uh, will oppose any, any plan that has to go before them that includes incentives. So, in other words, monetary um, offers to lure the company to Austin, including things purportedly like excessive tax breaks, um, property access, et cetera. Uh, what, what's your take on that?
0: Well, you know what, <clears throat> Austin has uh, two real considerable challenges right now. One's an affordability challenge, the other one's a mobility challenge. And the last thing we should be doing is considering doing anything that's going to exacerbate those challenges. What we don't know is whether or not a company of the size or resources of Amazon could come into our city and help us deal with or, or, or approach those challenges in ways that we can't by ourselves or we can't on the timing that we could with them. So when, when we were putting together a response to, to Amazon, rather than writing a letter to them that was promising incentives, I wrote a letter to them that really just laid, laid out where we were. I mean, this is a magical place, a magical city. We have those challenges. Uh, and I think it would be important for us to engage in a conversation with, with, with anyone. Uh, that could come into our city or join with us or co-invest with us in a way that that helps us deal with traffic in this city or mobility in this city. People here at South By who have driven around uh, the city would understand that really well. Uh, the, the the pledge that was signed by um, a member of the, of the council talked about uh, excessive, using the same word you just used, excessive incentives uh, or paying money to, to to buy a company to come. and. That's not something that, that that we would do. But I'm not going to preclude having the conversation about how in a new paradigm uh, a company could weave itself into the fabric of a community and come into a way come into a city in a way that 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 benefits that city. That's a conversation that I think we, we would have if if Amazon would like to engage in that conversation.
1: Mayor de Mozart.
2: Well. We're competitors at this moment,
1: all right. <laughs>
2: but I, I love this guy, and your city is magical, Thank okay? You. Uh, you can quote me to Amazon. You. Uh, <laughs> so it's, we, you know, we respect all the other cities and their approaches. Everyone's got to figure out what works for them. We don't like the old paradigm. The old paradigm used to be a bunch of localities competed against each other to give the most money possible to a big company. Mm -hmm. Um, We think that is a bankrupt concept. I think it's absolutely right. Steve's making an important point. It's one thing if you have a conversation about incentives, but there's also a conversation about what the company will specifically commit to, which I think is a very productive uh, concept. But what we've said from the outset is, because we don't want to go down this road Uh, with any number of companies. We believe that that's a strategy that does not work any longer for our local circumstance. We're not doing an incentive package. We are willing to work to make locations work for them and to find any number of ways to make it a positive experience if they come to New York City. And we argue to them, look, if if the number one reason, I'm gonna go back to the core of this, apparently the number one reason for having a second headquarters is to have a, a greater talent base to draw upon. And we argue that we have the most abundant talent base and, and we have the location, so that's the reason to come and then we'll work together to make it work. But I think the, the incentive challenge, the way it was used in the past, um, basically became kind of usurious. It was, it was companies gaming cities against each other and we don't want to fall into that trap.
1: Mm-hmm. Still to be determined. However, in the meantime, I understand there's another uh, issue on which you two are in competition. Barbecue.
2: Oh. <laughs> this is this is this is very controversial. Who, who's gonna be the tiebreaker? <laughs> yes. Do they have barbecue in New York? <laughs> okay. All right. You know, I just want to say we're supposed to be the, the rude people, but I, I just call this city magical and now he starts up with me. Okay. Uh, I'm gonna but I'm gonna be cool about this. I'm gonna be cool. There was this really big Brooklyn barbecue controversy these last days. <laughs> Um, I want to just very nobly and honorably uh, surrender to you um, because uh, <laughs> I've had barbecue in Austin. I've been to Lockhart, the barbecue capital of Texas, in the view of many. And uh, we do not have as good barbecue as you, okay? Let's just get this clear. Oh, wow. We've got a lot of good things. Now I can, I, I can I, leave. You can <laughs> leave. <laughs> I got a lot. Of, we lo- my city, I believe it's the greatest city in the world. But I'm not competing with Austin on barbecue. Okay, let's just get real.
1: Lou <laughs> that kind of takes the air out of your chance to. Argue I, I was gonna that. say
2: I, another
0: reason why I so respect. Oh this mayor. wow.
1: Okay. <laughs> well, with that, with that love fest, isn't
0: that
2: beautiful?
1: I, beautiful? That was really. I wasn't beautiful. expecting that. See actually. how I'm mayors right. get
2: along. <laughs> you know, it, it. you have brought people together here today.
1: <laughs> Mary Wheeler or carried away in on barbecue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> salmon. I'll, I'll that i think, I, he has I salmon. think
3: uh, <laughs> our host has been magnificent and magical mm, this week and i want to thank him for that and uh, my team and i went out had a wonderful barbecue lunch yesterday and i would have to agree it rivals russell street barbecue in portland wouldn't you agree maurice i think it does wow.
1: Great! Wow. How was that for an answer? That was pretty exactly. good. That, that was enough. I did not mean to acknowledge you more affirmatively than I think I did too. Which is, we should, we should all acknowledge you. You've been working pretty hard, and now you're here on the yeah. panel yeah. under the hot lights, hosting this whole event. Same time. Um, so let's turn our attention to the audience for the last two minutes or so that we have. Um, <laughs> <minutes. I'm> not, <laughs> not for questions. Not for. No, what I wanted to say that was confusing is um, I, I'd like to. Uh, address the question of, of what folks here who may be constituents of your cities or other cities might do if they feel empowered by your points about, about local power. How can they involve themselves in your efforts? Oh, wow.
0: I love that. <laughs> I think being, being being active and being present and being vocal uh, is, is probably the most important thing. Uh, getting together with other people and, and organizing uh, is, is powerful. Uh, I think that uh, being being involved and, and present in democracy is what people need to do.
2: Amen.
3: And vote. Uh, I would just say stay stay engaged. You you, you can't be a pop up activist there hmm. for one minute and gone the next. You really need to see it through, and you need to find other people who agree with you on whatever your issue is. Work with them. Develop a strategy. Come find elected officials who agree with you on. Uh, that strategy and work with them and push it all the way through. I've seen so many well-intentioned, good movements die either I- at, at the local level or at the state level because people didn't push it all the way through across the finish line. So stay engaged throughout the process. Amen.
2: Amen. And I want to say in, in New York City, we you know, I mentioned earlier there's a, there's a democracy crisis going on and we can all see it with our with our eyes all over this country. And I would argue there are certain things that President Trump is doing that's exacerbating that. But locally, we can reinvigorate our democracy. So we have a new agenda we put out called Democracy NYC. And it's very core notions. For example, we are going to have a a specific goal for registering voters for our city and have our entire city government be responsible to engage people, whether it's in any anytime they come to a government office or whether it's young people in our high schools who are ready to register to vote. We want to take responsibility for making sure everyone is part of this. So we've set a goal over the next four years to register 1.5 million New Yorkers who are not registered now uh, and get them engaged in democracy. We, it's like so fundamental and everything, this is another thing a local government can do. Every local government working with people and this is a people solution too. So you say, how do people get involved? Anyone can register people to vote. In starting with friends and family, workers, family members and coworkers, and everybody you know. Uh, we're going to reinvigorate civics education because it's basically been uninspiring to young people. We want to do something that's really cool, rapid response civics, to teach young people to engage the issues as they're occurring, help them understand the ways they can make an impact. Now they have the most powerful example that we could possibly imagine, the students from Parkland. We want to amplify that so young people feel empowered. And we wanna make a fundamental change in how uh, we address elections, because there's too much money in our elections in this country. So we're gonna put a referendum on the ballot in the fall to go to public financing and get money out of the political process once and for all. And that, I think, is gonna inspire people.
1: Great note to end on. We're out of time. Thank you all. Thank you.
0: Thank you. It's Thank been a lovely you. conversation. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Thank you. Yeah, appreciate it. Thank you brother.